Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today I'm joined by Vox senior politics reporter Jane Poston. This is episode three. This Fourth Watch Podcast is presented by The First TV. Find out more at thefirsttv.com. More on that later. From politics as professional wrestling to journalism as sports, to Coaston's experience writing for conservative and liberal media outlets, we start at our current media moment and date. You know, really one of the most important signaling opportunities for people in the media, and that is their pinned tweet. Um, and uh, yours uh, is this great gif of Mad Max with saying, that's bait, uh, with the text, everything happening right now. Uh, which, uh, you know, really, I think, says a lot about media, politics, our cultural moment. But bait, uh, tell me about that. What does that mean? And why is that so important right now? I think that um, as anyone who follows me knows, I'm really interested in the history of professional wrestling, um, which will get to my point in a second. And professional wrestling, I find fascinating, kind of the, the storylines of professional wrestling as it is in some ways more of like an apparatic sport than a sport, kind of like a play more than a sport. But so much of that, I think, is about the idea of kayfabe, about the storylines between two wrestlers, for example. And so a great example of kayfabe will be that there are these two wrestlers who are supposed to hate each other, or they're supposed to represent two entities that hate each other. So you'll have the Iron Sheik, um, you know, versus a specific wrestler who's supposed to represent something else. And they are, you know, this is supposed to be kind of Wagnerian, this idea of good versus evil or evil versus evil, or the idea of a baby face turned heel or a heel turned baby face. But all of this isn't real. All of this are two people who probably like together, like, like each other a lot and travel together as happened uh, with the Iron Sheik and an example in which he was uh, arrested for drunk driving alongside a wrestler. He was supposed to be in a storyline <laughs> fighting. And so I think about that a lot because I see a lot of moments, for example, in which I think Trump or other people in politics take advantage of the 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 kayfabe and take advantage of the bait taking for example trump will say something about how well he's gonna look at that which means nothing looking at something i could take a look at something and that does not mean i have done anything or that represents anything but then you have breathless hill reporters saying like oh donald trump is going to take action on this and then you get into this long news cycle well not very long a 24-hour news cycle about Trump saying he's going to take a look at something or he's going to put out a memo on something, which even in the memo says that we will examine doing X when that hasn't actually happened. And I think that so much of what we see in politics is bait, is an effort to get people to yell about something, especially online or on social media, right. in a way that distracts people from real issues. Now, I think sometimes that bait is representative of larger issues, um, the same way that the kayfabe of the 1980s in wrestling was very different from the kayfabe of the early 1990s. You know, there's a lot less kayfabe about the Soviet Union, a lot more <laughs> about the Iraq War, for example, in the early 90s. But that doesn't mean it's real. That doesn't mean it's necessarily... In, that doesn't mean that it itself is important. It might be important in context, but it is not itself important. And so I really want people to not necessarily get distracted because I think that we're in a moment in which politicians 
very much value our ability to get distracted. And right. we are a uniquely distracted, easily distracted species, as I found. And so I think that that is something I think is really important is that um, you, know, you don't have to comment on everything that happens. Not everything that happens is a really big deal. Not everything that happens is representative of a larger thing. Sometimes it's just a thing that took place. Right. And I think that so many times we want to give ourselves a reason for our distractions. So we can say that, uh, for instance, I got um, a Trump adjacent GOP campaign email that was headed with, I think, literally the left hates children. And the example was that a clearly mentally unwell woman, I believe in Boulder, Colorado, yelled obscenities at a 12 year old biking where with a Trump Pence sign on his bike. And I'm like, oh, that is clearly like, that's bad. Don't yell at children. Being unhinged is not fun for anyone involved. But that was clearly an effort to come up with a thing, to come up with like a red meat thing that we could get really upset about. Right. And then write 17 think pieces about. And I'm like, or we could just not do that. We could move on with our lives. <laughs> well, yeah. And I think that that gets into, you know, kind of the nationalization of local politics in which something that happens in a, you know, a, a small area, it's because, and we want to make it representative of like a larger story, but sometimes it just isn't. Right. Yeah. And, and you mentioned kind of two elements of kayfabe and, and bait. And I guess, you know, the, the longer way is like taking the bait. Um, and, and one of them is, is really not only is it, you know, Trump and politics, but our media, uh, our sort of the, the, the situation of the media landscape is so bait driven and kayfabe driven. I, I think certainly with the cable yeah. news, you know, cycle uh, and cable news is new interest, I think, in being part of this existential fight with uh, the person in the White House and who happens to also be a reality, you know, former reality TV host who certainly knows how the media is run and how to work the, uh, you know, work the, the refs a little bit. Um, tell me about kind of how kayfabe and bait plays with our current media interests. I think that the combination of someone, it's worth mentioning that Donald Trump is in, I believe, the World Wrestling um, Hall of Fame. Not the, yeah, he's in the Fall of, Hall of Fame yeah. for that because of, of course he is. Right. And so I think that when you have a 24-hour news cycle in which you need to, in many times, um, that's why I think I found this week of news particularly infuriating because if you back up for a second, we had about four or five days where there were no polls and polls are like political heroin, apparently. And especially for people for whom that gives them some, like something to write about. And then you have something to write about that, you know, people will click on. And for so much of our industry, so much of that is empowered. Like it is click based. And I, I'm not saying that is click bait. That is a separate issue, but it is click based. If you write about a poll, if you write about a good poll, a bad poll, if you write about how Rasmussen shows a tightening, if you write about the tightening, if you write about how the tightening isn't real, if it's not tight, like we have an entirely poll-based political economy in some ways. But you had a couple of days after the conventions where there were no poll, where there were no polls, and so you had people basically coming up with things to start fights about on the internet, and then write about those fights externally. And so I think that that plays into a larger story about our media in that, you know, a 24 hour news cycle where you continually have, you cannot necessarily write about the absence of something that's challenging to do. You can't say, 
well, we don't really have good polls right now. So we're not really sure what's happening. That's not really a news story. Right. You kind of have to come up with something. And so, and then you have to come up with something in which you need to continue what I view the fallacy that what you are writing about is truly representative of the people for whom you are not a part of and not writing. And this gets at one of my uh, major pet peeves, which is the general assumption that um, you know, we saw this during the both conventions in which you would see well-known political writers who I happen to know are not um, suburban women who are writing about, well, this doesn't appeal to me, but I'm sure that if I were a suburban mom living in Northeastern Virginia, this would appeal to me. Like, no, how on earth would you know that? As you just said, you are not one of these people. And so I think that that, that idea of kayfabe, the idea of we need to have these fights, and especially these fights that are so dependent on two political entities fighting with each other, when it's well known that those two political entities actually get along pretty well. Right. And the continuation of that, that theater, which I think that the challenging part about that is that while those two political entities may be well known to get along by people who are in our industry or in media, people don't know that. And so you think that you are taking part in, um, this is why I think it's very useful for, many, for anyone getting into journal- journalism to start out in sports, because the team, the team mantra really ha- has moved to political journalism in which you have your political journalists that you like and you have your political journalists that you don't like and you see them going at each other on Twitter and you're like, fight, fight, fight. And then you're like, oh, actually... They both went to Yale at the same time and they know each other pretty well and they've had dinner together and actually everybody kind of gets along and you get that a lot. I think that, um, you know, there are some pretty prominent people in both what I would say conservative media and even left of center media who actually are friendly with each other and get along with each other, but they have to kind of do this performative, um, name names, Jane. Come on. I am not naming names. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, but they have to do this kind of performative kayfabe on the internet. Yeah. Well, that's where... th- that's totally, though, but like to your point about sports, I mean, the other sort of elephant in the room here, and you've talked a little bit about it, is is Twitter, which is like by its nature public and, by, you know, then because of that leads itself to become this more performative element to it, exactly. which didn't exist really before. Exactly. And it's an inherently flattening concept in which you become whatever you are seen as being representative of. So for example, um, I find it interesting that there, I occasionally get emails or DMs from people who are either convinced that I am a dyed in the wool conservative or that I am, uh, I don't know, Antifa supportive (laughs) person. I don't know. Um, but or or you're doing oppo research, which I think is, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's not even people trying to guess my political persuasion. It's that it's very important for people to know what it is. It's very important for people to know which team I'm on, because then that will change how they view me accordingly. And I think that there are a lot of people who, who like that. I'm, I try to be pretty clear about where I stand on certain issues, but you, you might not necessarily know everything about my political persuasion. But I think that that team element and that flattening element where you kind of forget that people that you're talking to are actual human beings and they become representative of themselves. They become representative of their brand, so to speak, for 
or the, the brand for which you view them as representing. So you, know, you have certain figures who become, they are almost, you know, they become the projection of whatever you think their political or social leaning is. And then you see people who clearly lean into that a right. little bit where it becomes that they, they represent this. And I think you see this occasionally. Um, you know, I always think about how uh, Charlie Kirk, who's the president of Turning Point USA, every couple of weeks he does something about how he's done watching the NBA, but apparently he's been done watching the NBA. Somebody went back and took screenshots. He's been done watching the NBA about every six, six weeks to two months since 2013. And at a certain point, I'm like, you're, you're done being done watching the NBA. But like, that's part of his brand. Right. Well, he has to do, like, there's a brand there and there's a there's an understanding that he needs to be he needs to fully inhabit this particular character yeah, of being Charlie Kirk. I, I think there's there's no doubt that hating the NBA, but also loving the NBA for very specific reasons is is a is a signaling opportunity for people that, you know, on both sides who probably don't even watch that much NBA. Right. And I think that it, it's been interesting because there was some polling. I, I think I reshared it yesterday that there was some polling on how people like, oh, I stopped watching the NBA because of politics or something. But the polling didn't get at whether or not they watched the NBA beforehand. And now the NBA has become a do you like Trump or not <laughs> understanding whether, you know, regardless of whether or not you actually have really deep emotional ties to Chris Paul or something like that. And you see... It's it, it is interesting to see how that team mantra gets into people, how it becomes very important. You know, the the team spirit, the very it becomes very important to people that you you know, we need to follow these certain political allegiances. But the thing that gets me is that Twitter is real life in certain senses, and so I think Twitter is important because it is basically actual conversations that people are actually happening are actually having, but flattened. And so it kind of becomes as if you, your entire understanding of how other people thought be was based on watching a lot of plays about how people think. Like if you just watched, if you just read all of Oscar Wilde's plays and that was your entire understanding of how the human race worked, that's kind of like how Twitter works. But I would also say that it also, Twitter purports that people have homogeneous political and social views when that's not at all true. People yeah. are he, people of many heterogeneous views. And if there's anything we've learned over the last five to six years, it's that that is entirely true. And that's something that I think that um, Trump played up effectively in 2015, which is that when National Review was like, you're not a conservative, people were like, oh, that's great. He's unorthodox. And it turns out that wasn't exactly true, but people were uh, people that appealed to people. You know, there were people, I remember um, after the election, Chris Hayes did a uh, town hall in West Virginia, I believe with Bernie Sanders. And there was a man there who had, I believe suffered an injury um, in the, in coal mining. And actually um, my grandfather uh, was mined coal briefly in West Virginia um, before moving to Cincinnati and becoming a socialist. So a, a lot happened <laughs> wow. on that side of the family. Um, but he, this man talked about how, you know, I voted for Donald Trump, but we need Medicare for all. 
And this was, I remember that the response online was like, how could you possibly have those two views at the same time? I'm like, of course you can. Yeah. It's the same way anyone holds any views. It's the same way that like we flatten views so that, um, you know, people get very upset about like, oh, you advertise, you know, advocate for social justice, but you own an iPhone. Like, yes, of course, you are, you exist in the world as an actual human being and not just a projection right. of your p- personal politics. And so I think that that is the challenge is that Twitter is very bad at that. And that's why a lot of times on Twitter, I, I don't talk about politics. I talk about like, I don't know, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln or the Battle of Stalingrad, because I think that that is all to me, like one, that's just stuff I'm interested in. And two, I am not at all interested in becoming the projection of my own political views. We're going to talk more about the professional media and Kostin's own experience working with the left and the right. But first, Twitter and how that's shaped our media. And speaking of Twitter, here's another edition of Blocked, stories of ridiculous media Twitter. This is as a way to get to know me a little bit better. I'll tell you stories of people who have blocked me on Twitter for various reasons. This one is Michael Barbaro. Like pretty much everyone in the media, I'm a fan of the Daily Podcast from the New York Times. Sadly, if I were to tell the host of this podcast how much I enjoy it, he would not see it because I've been blocked by Michael Barbaro since the day before the 2016 election. Back when everyone pretty much assumed Hillary Clinton would be winning the next day, Barbaro wrote a piece of journalism, I guess, about Hillary Clinton and a campaign appearance in the rain. Here's a a little line of that. She's drenched now, her voice hoarse. The storm is mussing her hair. It's time to leave the stage. But just before doing so, she turns and raises both arms, giving herself up the storm end the moment and the looming end of this adventure. I described it as a poetic love letter in my tweet about it, and Barbaro in turn blocked me. Sad. I really like the, like the daily. Anyway, blocked on November 7th, 2016 status, still blocked. Now, back to Jane Coaston and Twitter. You know, the, yeah. w- the way you describe your grandfather, I think that is the norm for the most people in, a, in the country. And, and, and I think that oversimplification that we see, not, not just on Twitter, but on, you know, represented on cable news or represented in most of, say, print stories that, that come out in, you know, after the election, for example, who really try to diagnose what is the thing, what's the reason you voted for Donald Trump or what's the reason you support this person? Right. It's, there's this sense of wanting to to simplify everything when, you know, and I, again, I, I so I'll call it the Acela Media because I think when I was in New York City, when I was, you know, I I worked with a lot of people in D.C. There, there is less complication I think than there is in the bulk of the country in terms of the kinds of, you know, loosely political views. But people don't even necessarily think of them as political views. They're just views that people have on a variety of issues that draw them to in a certain direction or or away from a certain direction. Yeah, I would say that. Um... It's, it's interesting because I, my view of DC is very much shaped by both working in, um, if, I, if you could actually see me, I just genuinely pointed to the Capitol and then I pointed away from the Capitol and then I realized that podcasting is a very visual medium, so I should not do that. Well, thanks um, for narrating that so we can, yes. Absolutely, because I think that there are, I mean, we, we think about this with New York as well and we think about this with any major city, that there is DC, there's the DC that people get very upset about where everyone wears Ann Taylor and Brooks Brothers and um, runs around and interns with, you know, with house offices and goes to Old Ebbett Grill and eats a lot of clams or something. And then there's the D.C. where I've generally lived in Shaw and Logan Circle and Petworth and Trinidad. And now I'm living uh, near Navy Yard near the Nat Stadium, which is very much of people who are 
politically aware more so than I would get than you know where I, I grew up in Cincinnati, but not deeply entrenched in DC politics and exist in a world that is separate from you know. Not everyone works for the federal government. Well, many people do. And people exist in a world that is somewhat divorced from general political conversations. And so, but I do think that there is, I think that one of the challenges is that so much of our industry, I came into journalism, I think through kind of like the weirdo backdoor yeah. to the extent that I, I sometimes I'm like, how on earth did I get here anyway? And I think that has actually been a real boon to me that I did not have an internship at Politico when I was 22. I did not come here through the traditional means. Um, you know, I, I am a native Midwesterner. I didn't see the ocean for the first time until I was 21. Um, it's very big. And that was something I was not entirely <laughs> ready for. Uh, yeah. But I think that there is a sense of how much politics I know I think that this has been something that I think has really reshaped American thinking for many people including people outside of political circles is that before 2016 how you thought about politics was for many people kind of removed from how you thought about everything else going on in your life and I actually think there's been some interesting polling and a paper that came out I think it was yesterday uh, that indicated that one of the things that happened in 2016 is that Democrats and independents basically were like, well, the polls look good. So that means that our, the, or the, nece the necessity of voting is lower. But one of the things that happened over the last four years is that every, everything seems to have been saturated with politics. And I, I want to be careful here because I think that there's this idea that there was this time, this halcyon time where politics wasn't divisive and wasn't, you know, that there was this world in which we operated where we didn't have to think about this very much. Um, I believe it was, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that it was John Delaney who basically made the point uh, when he was briefly running for the Democratic nomination that if he was president, you wouldn't have to think about him all the time. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. I remember being like, you know, that's an effective pitch, but that is an effective pitch for me. And I'm hardly representative of the nation writ large. But I think that the idea of, you know, it's the same way I think about the concept of like identity politics, all politics is identity politics. Well, for many people, what school district your kids live in, what your, what your schools have, the facilities your schools have, um, how your kid gets to school, whether or not uh, you go to private or Catholic school, whether or not you, um, you know, where you live, how much land you have, what where you live looks like, all of that is shaped by political decisions. Politics is really how human beings interact with each other en masse. Yeah. And so I do think that that, but I do think that one of those things has been interesting is, uh, you know, the last time I went back to Cincinnati, um, one of the things I forgot about the Midwest is that everybody loves to talk and people will just talk, 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 talk. <laughs> and I remember... Um, I had an Uber driver who was talking about how, oh, like, you know, you live in DC. And then he talked a lot about John Boehner and John Boehner apparently bought Girl Scout cookies from his daughter. So he was like, John Boehner's a great guy. <laughs> and I don't understand what your, your guys' problem with him was. And I was like, well, you know, that's as good a reason as anything. But 
I think that how politics, I, I regret to say that unfortunately it appears that for many people, how DC people, and by DC, I mean like Capitol Hill people think about politics is now, I think, how a lot of people think about politics, how people are deeply invested, but in a weird hobbyist kind of way. I'm fine if you are, I think people should be deeply invested in politics because it is, again, deter it determines so many aspects of how you get to live your life. Right. Um, you right, know, the consequences for of it. Yeah. Yeah. For example, um, you know, I'm in a um, same sex marriage and that was a, a decision that we were able to make uh, pretty much because of a lot of political decisions made by a lot of other people who were not us. Yeah. But I think that the rise of political hobbyism, that is very bad and weird. And I don't like it. Like when you get into kind of weirdo resistance Twitter or weirdo MAGA Twitter, where certain people become celebrities in a very strange world. And then you're, you have to take a minute and think like, hang on, if you know, I, I always do um, something I've referred to as the mom test. And I'm like, my, my parents don't watch cable television and basically only watch PBS. And they think that Catherine Zeta-Jones is most famous for her work on uh, Welsh um, <laughs> period dramas from the late 1980s. And so I think to myself, does my mother know who this person is? Could, they, could my mother describe who this person is? And in general, the answer is no. Yeah. And that's actually been very helpful for people like Anthony Scaramucci or something like that, where I'm just like, this is going to be in like, it's sort of, um, when I was in college, a friend of mine, he was like, oh, you know, I'm going to have people over to play Trivial Pursuit. But he did not mention that the version of Trivial Pursuit he had was from 1978. <laughs> and the issue was like half of the questions were generally like, you know, about like General Patton or something. But half of them were so context dependent that if you were not alive watching television and existing in the world in 1978, there's no way you could have gotten it. It's sort of like, you know, if you thought that, you know, you think you know a lot about late 1970s um, pop culture, but you don't remember the Anthony's Scaramucci of 1978. Oh, yeah. You don't I mean remember the like. The side, 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 side characters. Oh, totally. And I, so, yeah. Well, I think the weirdo, that's been yeah. very helpful. Weirdo resistance Twitter, weirdo MAGA Twitter. Compare that to like the reality TV stars of you know maybe ten years ago, like you know yeah. the Snooki and and the situation. Um, you know, there's there's some. I feel like there's some crossover there because it's like there there's this pop element to it. But but both of them actually end up you know whether it's resistance or MAGA Twitter both end up on Twitter. And I, I wanted to ask you about this because I know you took a uh, very long Twitter hiatus earlier this year. I believe you gave it up for Lent, right? I did. I did. What, what brought th that to, to fruition? What, what, and what did you come away with after the time away? Um, well, I realized that I wanted to, so I was raised Catholic and grew up Catholic. And in some ways I think of myself still as a Catholic. Um, just a Catholic who, you know, can't do all the things for obvious reasons. But yeah, one of the things I remember, can, right? well, okay. we're, 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 you know, we're, we're working on that. Um, <laughs> on the, there's the whole gay thing. Well, yeah, um, but you know, there's different, 
sex. I guess Catholic specifically, maybe. Yeah. Maybe a little so, bit more complicated. No. Um, so now we go to a uh, United Methodist Church, which is interesting because the Methodists appear to handle things through a lot of meetings. And I, one thing I admire about Catholicism is that there were very few, you know, the Pope doesn't need to have a meeting with anyone to make a decision. The Pope is like, I just said this. And everyone's like, oh, okay. Or you just like politely ignore him. It's a little more um, collaboration happening. At, exactly. Yeah. And so... One of the things I remembered was like, okay, you know, I want to give up something for Lent or add something to my life for Lent. One of those two things. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to cheat and I would give up something I didn't like. Um, so be like, oh, I'm going to give up like bell peppers. I hate bell peppers. They're disgusting. And I'm like, this isn't hard at all. But I thought that it might be useful to give up Twitter, which is something I both really like and really hate. Oh, so I have been... I've been on Twitter since June of 2008. Um, my, I feel as if in some ways Twitter has molded me and molded my thinking. And it's probably how I have the jobs and careers that I have is being good at Twitter, which is a very specific skill. Um, but I thought to myself, like, it would actually be really helpful to, one, ensure that I could give it up. I think I was very concerned that, like, this was that my need for Twitter was too deep or that something would happen that would desperately need me to get on tw Twitter, which is ironic because while I was off Twitter, uh, a lot happened. Um, I, I think you, wait, so you were off Twitter essentially like in, in February, March right? and I was yeah. off for, um, you'd have to check when Lent began, but it was I'm basically Jewish, like, uh, the, yeah, that's, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I do know because I emailed you. It was like just before the pandemic really hit. Yeah, it was just before the pandemic. And then it was funny coming back 40 days later being like, so. <laughs> Anything changed? What happened? Um, but yeah, so I missed a lot. But it was actually helpful because for one thing um, on the Vox Slack, if there was something that was tweeted about that was needed, people just dropped the tweets there. And I was like, okay, we're good. But also it was helpful because it helped me back away from a lot of elements of Twitter that are particularly challenging, which is I did not, you know, you get on Twitter. I got on like 2008 when it was still kind of people talking about what they had for lunch. And then, you know, 12 years later, it's like this not, it's, it's funny because the vast majority of Americans are not on Twitter. Right. I think the number is like, I think like 78% of people are not on Twitter and the people who are on, it's like, 10% are active users or something like that. And so the people who, like me who use Twitter every day are very rare and tend to be siloed into media. Not even siloed ideologically, but siloed by job. Yeah. I, I, believe, by I believe the number is 2% of all tweets get sent by 90% 90, uh, 90 of all tweets get sent by 2% of all Twitter users. Yeah, which makes total sense. And so I thought it would be helpful to get out of that, to kind of get out of that siloing. It was challenging because there were certain moments where I was like, I actually just kind of want to talk to somebody about this. But then there are times in which you'll have, anytime you reach any level of prominence on a social media platform, which is an inherently flattening medium, um, as I mentioned, I was very used to having conversations with people, but it started to be that I recognized that people wanted to have conversations with me, but like, if I responded to them, they'd be very surprised and kind of like, oh, like Jane replied to me. And I'm like, that's, that's very weird. But I really wanted to take a break from that and take a break from thinking about Twitter as much. I'd recognized that I had started to have like, I would, um, I work out a lot. 
And I would realize that I sometimes during workouts, I just have this moment of being enraged for a second by something that somebody else tweeted. And I was like, what? Like, this is taking up too much space in my brain. And so I think that coming back, it's been helpful because for one thing, I can back away easier when I need to, when I need to get something done. Or when I just think that like, when I got back on Twitter, I recognized that Twitter was going to be for the next, you know, for the rest of the year, one of the worst places on earth because everyone is at home. Everyone is angry and everyone like we're coming up to an election that's very important and everyone kind of has this existential terror of whatever is going to happen. And yet, you know, you cannot stop time. You cannot stop the forward movement of time and everyone's expressing that in different ways. And so then it just turned into like giant fights about what other people were tweeting about. And I was like, no, no, no. What you're actually mad about is the fact that you got furloughed and there's a lot going on right now and it's very overwhelming and yet here you are on a social media platform yelling and so that it, it was very helpful to take a break from that we're going to go back to college next where Kostin edited a conservative libertarian paper but first the fourth watch podcast is presented by the first tv the first is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring bill o'reilly dana lash buck sexton and more it's a forum for new thought new approaches and an enlightening new voice for America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that form the greatest country on the planet. The first is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com. That's thefirsttv.com to learn more. Now back to Vox senior politics reporter Jane Coaston. I do, you know, notice you more than others in the in the media space, engaging with the sort of curiosity with people that uh, across the political spectrum, but I would say also, you know, particularly on the right. Um, and I wanted to, to ask you about your time in college because I know you you were the editor of a, I guess, conservative libertarian ish newspaper. Uh, mm-hmm. What what brought you to that, and and what did you know what did that bring to what you're doing in your career now? So. Um... I will tell you the story, and I, I wish it were one that was more grandiose than what it was. Um, so here's what happened. So there are two main papers at the University of Michigan at the time. Um, apparently there is now, a th- there was briefly a third, but the people behind it couldn't really get their act together. So there's the Michigan Daily, which is the main student newspaper, where basically if you are a sports reporter who went to Michigan, you wrote for the Daily and now work for ESPN. Um, so like Rich Eisen and, um, a host of other people who have done, who've gone on to greatness, um, all wrote for the daily. And then there was a Michigan review, which when I was there, uh, was the editor, um, in chief went, my freshman year was James Dixon, who I now I believe works for the Detroit news. My sophomore year, it was Nick Chiolis, who is an attorney who I think one of my very good friends, um, but definitely, a very libertarian leaning person, it, the political allegiances of the review shift as based kind of largely on who is in charge at the time. But the main challenge I had, I wanted to write, I had not really done very much journalism in high school because it was high school. And, but I wanted to write and I wanted to do more of that. But the challenge was that the Michigan daily had elections to decide uh, who, you know, who would cover what. And they had those three o'clock in the morning on a weekday. And I being, I would have been 
I turned 18 the like my first weekend up at school because my birthday so early as it is uh, September 3rd. And even then, I recognized that three o'clock in the morning was not a time I wanted to see for any reason ever, um, which was actually kind of hilarious later because I later uh, in college, I worked at a medical library and I took the overnight shift. Oh, wow. And it turns out that three o'clock in the morning, not a very happening time on a college campus. <laughs> and that's for the best. That's absolutely for the best. Nothing should be happening at three o'clock in the morning. But so my decision to join the review was, I wish I could tell you that it was about my um, deep interest in libertarian and conservative thought, but it was more about my deep interest in being asleep. Um, but I actually think that my college writing experience, because I was around people for whom um, there was like a giant uh, poster board of Ronald Reagan in the office and a big American flag. And, but it was interesting because I think, and I've written about college conservatism and my interpretations of it before, a lot of people there who thought of themselves, you know, when you're a freshman in college, your political views are what I've found to be one of two things. Either you have the political views basically of your parents or you have the political views of the exact opposite of your parents. <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. So you either are like, I'm a Republican because my parents are Republicans or I'm a Republican because my parents are like, I don't, I'm trying to think really like huge Howard Dean fans or something like that. You kind of have a, um, you, 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 it's, that's your rebellion of sorts. And so I met a lot of people for whom they're tied to Republican and conservative politics, which I actually think mirrors most of what most, how most people think about their politics. It was not tethered to, I read Edmund Burke and I really came to value the, you know, that we, you know, what was is better than what is. And we have to stand athwart progress yelling stop. It was more so like, well, my parents voted for George Bush. So, yeah. Okay. And I thought that was interesting because, um, you know, and my experience as being an editor while not being at, you know, a libertarian or a conservative at the time was very much of like, well, you still have to make the case to me. You know, you may have made this case to other people at college Republican meetings or at um, the few meetings that college libertarians had at the time. Apparently, I believe, I'm sure the University of Michigan's college libertarians are far more together than they were in like 2007, but they weren't at the time. Um, but you have to make that case to me and you can make whatever case you want, but it has to make sense to me. Like you put forth whatever argument, but it, I need to be able to tie it together right. and have it make sense to me. So I thought that was a really valuable experience because it also showed that like one thing that I, I've always found interesting is that the conservative movement has long put a lot of effort in college students and high school students. So when I was at uh, the Michigan Review, the Collegiate Network, um, which uh, gave us money, they flew us out to uh, these conferences. And that's actually where I met Raihan Salam. That's where I met a, a whole host of people who I still know to this day um, and put us up in nice hotels. And you know, that was one of the first, the first time I went to New York was for a Collegiate Network event. Yeah, saw the ocean. And so, yeah, and so... <laughs> very that was very much a sense of like attempting to mold the next generation i've always thought it was funny um so let's see there are a bunch of people so Catherine miller who's at buzzfeed she and i were at the same like we went to prague together on a collegiate network trip oh, well. um 
so did there are a host of people. CJ Ciaramella, who's now at Reason. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I met him at a West Coast Editors Conference where we talked about Daft Punk for like 30 minutes um, in like 2008. There are like a host of people in journalism who all Michael Warren, who's now at CNN, a host of people who are all people I met from collegiate network events um, or like collegiate network happenings. Um, I don't think any of them would think of themselves as being dyed in the wool conservatives uh, or exactly how the collegiate network would have put that. But it, it was interesting to me that that was something that con- it seemed to me movement conservatism was very interested in it, yeah. even, even back then. But And I would say, you know, in addition to you, the people that you've named um, have a, I would say, some level of introspection and interrogation of even their own, you know, th- there, there's a, there's a nuance to their, to them, to their reporting uh, that you maybe don't get if you don't have that experience. So I think that that's, you know, it certainly is helpful in a lot of ways. Um, right. I want to ask you, before we get to the, the lightning round, last thing, on the other end of the spectrum, there's something called what, I would, what I've been calling Harper's Letter liberalism that's kind mm-hmm. of on the rise a little bit in the media. Yasha Malk, Matt Taibbi, Thomas Chatterton Williams, Barry Weiss. Where, where do you see that playing as, a, as sort of this pendulum swing away from, from maybe where things are in maybe on the resistance side of the left? Um, I, have, uh, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Okay. For one thing, it seems to be what interests me is that all of the people you just mentioned, if you ask them about like actual political views, um, aside from where they stand on um, Israel and Israel-related issues, uh, where I think that you would see a high divergence uh, among them, where they actually stand is probably kind of similar. Yeah. Um, so they're all, I, you know, if you think of being culturally liberal as being a thing, that's where they all stand. And I find it interesting that what media thinks about itself has become a media story, which is amusing to me because it sort of reminds me how um, back in a couple of years ago, and now it feels like it was 3,000 years ago, uh, when Jameis Winston was quarterback at Florida State, um, he was alleged to have committed sexual assault. And one of the things that happened with that is that if you were a sports-adjacent writer or person and you discussed that on Twitter, somewhere out of the clear blue sky, Florida State fans would show up and scream obscenities at you. And it actually became this thing that you, you would use the hashtag talking about the Knowles because it became this thing. You just couldn't do it. If you wanted to talk about Florida State football or talk about Jameis Winston, you needed to go to like a quiet room and lock the door and do so like, you know, in the same way that you, 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 you should do all of your praying per uh, the New Testament. You have to do it out you know, away from human beings. And it became this media story of sorts. And you can go back. There was some great New York Times reporting on it where it was, it became not about what Jameis Winston did or didn't do. Um, it became about how the media was reporting on what Jameis Winston did or didn't do, but then it just became about the media and screaming at them for being mean to Florida State. Yeah, this meta. Which is funny. Yeah. yeah, it was very meta. And that's what I kind of think about the Harper's Letter thing, where I'm just like, what are we actually talking about here? We're going to end with where the media stands in 2020 and the fourth watch lightning round. Six questions in 60 seconds. Actually, it's a little more than 60 seconds this time. But first, how did this get published? This is a segment from... Uh, 
the Fourth Watch newsletter, now on the audio form. This one is about the Daily Beast talking about teachers that had died with COVID. The safety of opening schools has become one of the most contentious hot-button issues related to coronavirus since the pandemic began. There's no doubt that much of the subtext of the debate is anchored in how you feel about Donald Trump, which is sad. The politicization of an issue that mostly affects kids in an area where science should be the sole factor in determining opinion. Stories like one in the Daily Beast serve to unnecessarily add to the panic and disinformation about the topic. Under the headline, at least four teachers have died of COVID-19 since start of school year, with the Daily Beast subhead of heartbreaking, the story is an aggregation of an Associated Press article telling a similar but somewhat different story. The Beast describes the news as an ominous sign of what's to come as students return to classrooms across the country, a characterization sure to provide maximum impact with the reader. The truth, however, is much different. The AP story describes them as, quote, teacher deaths, but also makes clear that the teachers in the story died through COVID-19 factors that were completely separate from returning to in-person school. For one teacher, it was through church. Another, it was summer football practice. The teachers in the story neither contracted coronavirus at school, nor were even known to have spread it to anyone since the school year began. Professor and writer Zainab Tufeksi took the beast to task for this misrepresentation to the readers. The infoecology has switched from underplaying the threat to scaremongering. Human nature plus business incentives. It's easy to laugh at QAnon folks who fear widespread cult kidnappings of children, but alarmism directed at children is eternal, she tweeted. It's become difficult to have an evidence-based conversation about this, but what we must try because children are being gravely harmed by closed schools. The teachers in the Daily Beast pickup could have held any profession. It could have been about four plumbers who contracted COVID and sadly died. Their deaths had nothing to do with their occupation, and the beast misrepresentation hurts all readers who are struggling with the issue of in-person school. The Daily Beast, how did this get published? Now, back to Jane Coaston. There are moments in which I'm like, am I a, po- am I a libertarian populist? Is that what's happening here? Because that's a confusing identity to hold. <laughs> but very much around was like, how untethered is our industry and are we from what actual people are doing and actual people are thinking? Because I... I understand that we hold prominence and people think a lot about what people in our industry say, but people think about what we say on their way to do something else. People listen to the weeds or listen to you or listen to anyone on their way to the store where maybe they don't have enough money to get groceries. So they're kind of white knuckling it through the store and really trying to, you know, they, they aren't sure if they're going to get that overdraft fee. That's going to hit that $35, which the worst feeling in the entire world when you can't get groceries and you feel like an asshole because other people are looking at you or they're listening to to us while you know applying for jobs and trying to figure out you know can they get this does this job really need a bachelor's degree because they were in college but then they had to drop out to take care of family and you know they're trying to wiggle this to make it sound the best it can on their resume So much of what we do is what other people are listening to while they're doing something else and probably doing something that to them is far more important. Yeah, a distraction in some ways. It is. It is. And I think that it's worth really unfocusing on ourselves and on, on our own industry and thinking about like, okay, what are people actually doing? What are people actually taking part in? Um, you know, I, I think sometimes that's, that's one of the challenges about, uh, my specific work and my specific beat is that I will, you know, I write about conspiracy theories and I write about, um, you know, I always get emails when, or, you know, asked about 
when I write about a conspiracy theory or something like QAnon, for example, and they're like, what, you know, why is this important? And I'm like, I, because I think that writing about conspiracy theories in some ways is writing about how people think, not how people wish they thought, but how people actually think. And so I think it, it is very much though worthwhile taking a second to think about why we're writing about the things we are. Why am I writing about QAnon? Why am I writing about these, you know, these specific entities or fights among conservatives it's not just because I think it's interesting. A lot of times I need to make the case to myself that it's important. And I think that as an industry, we need to not only make the case to ourselves that it's important, but also be able to make the case to the person who is listening to our podcast on their way to the store. Why is this important? Why should they be thinking about it? If, you know, we can be putting things into context all we want, but a lot of people work at jobs where they could be fired for saying things. A lot of people, you know, this is, uh, you know, if we want to talk, if we want to challenge that, we need to uh, increase union protections. But a lot of people are in jobs or at places where they can't say what they want to, and they wouldn't necessarily want to work somewhere where they could, or where, you know, their workplace is dangerous and not in a cancel cancel culture danger kind of way, but in an actual literal physical danger kind of way. And so I think it's worth trying to think about how we do what we do and make the case that it's important, not just us, but to the people who aren't tethered to this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it does also feel like there's there's some another example of kind of a, there is a somewhere in the middle that between not important and the most important story in the in the you know country today. Um, but yeah. Uh, anyway. All right. Yeah. So- heterodox. Heterodox. Have you know we need to have a better understanding of heterodox views in which people might care about this but not like most of they don't super care right right exactly uh all right jane this is great last thing one minute six questions 60 seconds lightning round where were you born cincinnati ohio you're the senior politics reporter for vox what's one benefit and one cost of the role uh, one benefit is that I work among some of the smartest people I will ever know. And one cost is that all of the smart people don't know stuff about college football. And that makes me sad. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Um, Matthew Iglesias in many respects, uh, Ezra Klein. And I would actually have to say Spencer Hall. He's a sports writer who was at SB Nation. And he's responsible in many ways for me getting here. Uh, he, he goes, he's, every day should be Saturday. Uh, he, the, the sports website he launched changed my life. That's great. What, who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Hmm. Let me think. I really like, I'm going to actually give you two. Okay. And they're alter, all kind of on alternative sides of the spectrum. I really like, um, let's see, I really like Guy Benson. He's at Fox News. Yeah. Um, I think that he is, I have many critiques of how he does and what he does, what he, his job, but I also think that you can tell that he is doing his very best. And I think especially working in more of an ideological space, he is doing the best that he possibly can. I would say that someone else who I really like is, um, hmm, let me think, I'm trying to think of how best to put this. I think 
that one of the things, you know, I'm going to have to go back to sports writing. And I think that one of the interesting things about sports writing is that you can say something that's entirely not offensive and make people very offended. And so I think one of the people who's the best at dealing with that is Bill Connolly. He is a sports writer who talks about college football and thus gets more hate mail than I think anyone I know combined. But he's always handled that with such grace and such an ability to deal with the fact that people have deep feelings about football that they put all of the, you know, if you can't put all your feelings into other places, you'll put it in the college football and he bears the brunt of that. And so I think those two people, and I, I also want to be clear though, I, I respect a lot of people who are in my space and I respect a lot of people who are outside of my space. And I think that there's a lot of different work there. And there are certain times where I'm like, you know, you, you don't have to like everything that everybody does, but right. I also think that it's worth noting when you can tell that someone is attempting to try especially when they are attempting to try with an audience that very much wants them, you know, the audience that wants to get the carrot, not the stick. Yeah. Who, uh, similarly, who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention right now? Oh man. There, there are a lot of those. Um, basically, um, I think that ESPN's Mina Kimes is one of the uh, smartest people I've ever witnessed, and she's a brilliant writer. And I think that she also holds an interesting space um, being a very prominent woman in writing and sports media. Um, I think that a lot of my, the people I've worked alongside have been people who I think are, you know, at MTV News or at Vox who I think are really interesting thinkers who I think that because they didn't necessarily come, you know, I, like I said, I came in through the weird back door in journalism. And there are a lot of people like that. There are a lot of people who have not been siloed into these positions. And so I think that paying attention to the writing that's happening at a place like Reason, uh, paying attention to places like uh, the Jacobin, paying attention to writing at, um, you know, the American conservative, paying attention to writing that's at, like hot air, where it's people who are writing from in entirely separate ideological spectra, but are writing for and to a different audience and doing it in really interesting ways. Right. You know, you're the second podcast guest to mention Jacobin. The other one is Tucker Carlson. Uh, yeah. One year from today, what is one prediction for the media? Uh. Oh, predictions. Historically, that has not gone well. Um, I think that the media is going to continue on this interesting spectrum in which people will keep decrying the media and downplaying its importance while being more dependent on it than ever. I think that uh, we the, the term mainstream media is one that needs to be redefined and then redefined again. Uh, I see so many people who, um, you know, it's kind of a trope that like the mainstream media isn't reporting on this while you wave an Associated Press article at someone. But I think that what we think of as being the media, I think of National Review as being media. I think of Daily Wire as being media. I think of the Daily Caller as being media. I think of the Jacobin as being media. I think of Current Affairs as being media. I think of all of these entities as being media. And when we say mainstream media, but then you have to, you know, parse it out to be like, oh, we mean cable news. Well, cable news is its own form of media. And as anyone who's ever interacted with cable news knows, it's a very specific type of media. 
And so I think that we're going to keep seeing this weird juxtaposition of people saying that the media is less important than ever while being more dependent than ever on media. Got it. Jane, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to Jane Coaston. Great conversation. Go follow her on Twitter. She's really awesome there. CJane87. The uh, Fourth Watch brand started as a newsletter last year, three times per week newsletter. You can subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. If you like the music in the show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And of course, download and follow and like and subscribe rate or review if you're like this uh this podcast that really helps uh so do that on apple on spotify on google wherever you're listening to this podcast please do that it helps spread the word the fourth watch podcast is produced at full circle studios in addison texas next episode i'm joined by fox nation's lara logan a lot to talk about there stay safe talk to you then